It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. I'm Teresa. And I'm Colleen. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Welcome to episode 139 of Tangential Inspiration Podcast. It's just me. I'm going solo with this one since Colleen is still recovering from her cochlear surgery. She's excited to come back and tell you all about it. So we wish her well. Can't wait for her to come back. I'm going to talk about an unhoused man that two women totally changed his life. My sister sent me this story. I'm going to chat a little bit about the Navajo Code Talkers, Native American group from World War II, heroes in my book. And then I will finish with some otter talk. So fun at the end. Both of my sisters have sent me some great stories, and my mom has given me some suggestions too. I'm just waiting on my brother and my dad. I get funny stuff from my brother, so I guess that makes up for it. He sent me a TikTok last night about an angry breakup in the UK. It seems that an ex-husband decided to get his revenge by plastering signs all around town with his ex's number. The flyer read that if they called the number with their best Chewbacca call, they might win 100 pounds. So I guess everyone in my family does send me great finds. My sister sent me a story about a man who had been unhoused for the last 17 years. This guy previously had a good job, a house, a great life until he got into a car accident and lost his leg. He continued to work after the accident, but things just slowly deteriorated and he ended up living on the streets. He had type of social worker who he'd call or try to call, but eventually gave up on that since he, it would never get him anywhere. Two local women in Oceanside decided to do something to help this 65-year-old man. One of those women was Kate Monroe, CEO of Vetcom, a nonprofit helping homeless veterans obtain disability compensation and transition into housing. In early May, she was interviewing dozens of people living on the streets of San Diego and Oceanside to gain a better understanding of the situation. She interviewed a gentleman named Barney and tried to help him with phone calls. When they first met, Barney shared a business card with the name of an employee from the city department responsible for helping unhoused people secure housing. Barney said that he had tried a hundred times without a response, so Monroe decided to try as well. She said she tried to call 50 times without an answer. According to their website, the city of Oceanside served 622 homeless individuals last year, and of those, 39 became permanently housed. Monroe and another woman decided to split the cost of a hotel room to get Barney off the streets. He doesn't have a drug problem or alcohol addiction. He isn't battling with mental illness. And Monroe pointed out how easy it was to actually get him off the streets, yet nothing had been done to help him. She's clearly frustrated with the money being spent in this area, not being properly allocated in a way that will remedy the problem. Monroe has pointed out the possibilities if people just come together and help with those less fortunate. 
She's frustrated with the government for sure, but I love this statement she shared, and I couldn't agree more. America, my word for you is lean in. Lean into this problem. Stop waiting for the government to fix every single thing because they're not going to. So I love the part of the story where she's reminding people to roll up their sleeves and help. I love the two women that have helped get Barney off the streets. He's saving up some of his government benefits to put towards an RV for him to live in an RV park with full amenities, and he's already saved $2,000. It's amazing what a month inside will do. He's all smiles. We got him cleaned up, new clothes, got his haircut. He's looking and feeling like his full self again, Monroe had said. The story gets better. Remember how she had interviewed people on the streets? Well, a local news station ran part of it, and believe it or not, Barney's sister in, I want to say Georgia, saw her brother in the clip. She called Monroe and said the man with the helmet that she had talked to was her brother. She had been looking for him for 17 years, and they were finally reunited. That made the news, too, and the reunion is beautiful. Barney's life forever changed because these two ordinary women stepped up. I just love this story because Barney's life was forever changed by these two women that just stepped in. And it's just a reminder that we all can do something. So we've done a few stories about the more unsung heroes at war. In episode 27, we talked about Irina Sendler, a nurse who helped hundreds of Jewish children escape death at the hands of the Nazis in ghettos of Warsaw, Poland during World War II. In episode 98, we talked about Florence Nightingale, who changed health practices that saved wounded soldiers at a time where infection caused more death than combat. And most recently, Colleen talked about the amazing women of Bletchley Park in episode 128, where these women were code breakers, defeating Hitler's Enigma code machine and helping end the war in Europe. Now we're going to talk about some largely unsung heroes who helped obtain victory in World War II on the Pacific Front, the Navajo Code Talkers. Not a lot of people know about the Navajo Code Talkers, despite there being a movie about them starring Nicolas Cage in 2002 called Wind Talkers. I don't think a lot of people have seen the movie, and I'm included. That's sad because these members of the Navajo Nation certainly deserve a lot more recognition for their contribution to World War II. But interestingly, the Navajo Code Talkers were not the first Native Americans enlisted in the U.S. war effort to be used to make codes. Having secure communications is essential to being able to mount an effective offense or coordinate a good defense. Messages must be clear to the intended recipient and totally undecipherable to the enemy. They must be able to be translated quickly in order to be of any use. In World War I, the United States Army first came up with the idea of using Native American languages as code. Keep in mind, at the time of World War I, most Americans didn't view Native Americans as citizens. And the 1906 Burke Act gave the government discretion as to whether to grant citizenship to indigenous people. People who were literally here before our country was even founded. This is just crazy to me. The first Native Americans to become code talkers for the U.S. military in World War I 
were from the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw Nation is largely contained in Oklahoma. Ironically, most of the Choctaw Code talkers were raised in Indian boarding schools, meant to make the boys more American. They were even punished for speaking their native language. Then they were recruited into the U.S. Army to use their native language to send encoded messages. There were eight Choctaw code speakers, and they were able to speak over an unencrypted radio, meaning the enemy could possibly intercept the messages, but used a language completely unfamiliar to the enemy. As that program became more successful, more Choctaw men were recruited to help with coded communication towards the end of the war. While other code systems could take hours to decipher, the Choctaw code speakers could translate communications in minutes, making it both secure and fast. Otis Leader, who was one of the Choctaw code speakers, has a portrait that still hangs in the Army Museum in France that's captioned, The Ideal American Soldier. General John Pershing, who was the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces, in World War I, and one of the few ever five-star generals called Otis Leader and his fellow Choctaw code talkers, quote, one of the war's greatest fighting machines. In 2020, the United States Congress awarded the Choctaw code talkers the Congressional Gold Medal. Unfortunately, the recognition didn't come until all of those code talkers had already passed. It should be noted that the United States has used other indigenous people from other tribes as code talkers. There have been code talkers from the Cherokee, the Comanche, the Lakota, and the Winnebago tribes as well. All of these code talkers helped the American war efforts in World War I. In fact, the use of Native American code talkers was so successful that prior to World War II, both Japan and Germany sent people to the United States to learn the languages of various Native American tribes so they could help break their codes. But that's where the Navajo code talkers come in. Unlike many of the other Native American languages, relatively few people spoke Navajo, and there's never been a written language. Outside of the tribe, almost no one spoke the language. One of the few people outside of the tribe that spoke Navajo was Philip Johnston, a civil engineer. Johnston's parents were missionaries who lived on the Navajo reservation. While he wasn't fluent in Navajo, he knew enough to communicate, and at the age of nine, he was used as an interpreter for the Navajo delegation sent to Washington, D.C. to lobby for Native American rights. The Navajo language is distinct from other Native American languages because it's complex grammar. It was also an unwritten language, so there was no existing dictionaries or even samples of the language to be used to help understand the language. If you were not raised speaking Navajo, it would be incredibly difficult to understand or learn the language. It was estimated that at the time the U.S. entered World War II, there were only about 30 speakers of the Navajo outside of the Navajo tribe. Johnston served in World War I, and after the war became a civil engineer. In 1942, he was reading about a tank division training in Louisiana that was attempting to come up with a new code using Native American languages. Johnston used his military contacts to reach out to the U.S. Marine Corps and suggested Navajo. He offered to find speakers and train them. Reluctantly, the Marines agreed and allowed Johnston to start a pilot program with 30 Navajo speakers. 
After enlisting 30 speakers, one dropped out, leaving 29 Navajo soldiers that were stationed at Camp Elliott near San Diego, California in May of 1942. Working with the Navajo Code Talkers, Johnston started working out the code they would use. There were no words in the Navajo language for things like submarine or bomber plane, so they assigned Navajo words the substitute for the military language. A submarine was translated into the Navajo words for iron fish, and a bomber plane translated to the Navajo words for buzzard. Of course, the level of complexity increased for the enemy because the Navajo word for buzzard was J-show. So now, completely unrelated words in a little-known language were being used to describe very specific military terms. This made the code extremely hard to crack, but very easy to communicate for the Navajo code speakers. They further went on to pick Navajo words that translated a word that stood for a letter in the English alphabet. For example, the Navajo word for apple is bilasana. So they would say bilasana for the letter A if they had to spell something out. And another Navajo word would be used to correspond with B and so on. Because of the way the Navajo language was coded, even another Navajo speaker wouldn't necessarily know what the code meant. After the code was developed, there were higher-ups in the Marines that didn't trust the program or the abilities of the Navajo Code Talkers. In order to test the Navajo Code Talkers, they were given test messages to encrypt, transmit, and then decrypt. It took the Navajo Code Talkers two and a half minutes with no errors to transmit the message. The same message would have taken hours to complete under an encryption system in use at the time. In another test, this time under battle conditions, it was shown that a Navajo code talker could deliver a three-line message in about 20 seconds, compared to a machine encryption, which would take close to 30 minutes. Because of the success of those tests, Navajo code talkers were involved in every major operation involving the Marines in the war in the Pacific. They used radios and field telephones to transmit tactical information to combat units without fear of their messages being intercepted. A platoon of Navajo code speakers was created, Platoon 382. This was the Marines' first all-Indian, all-Navajo platoon platoon and the first 29 members were given special status. The 29 members of the platoon, 382, ranged in age from the youngest, William Dean Yazzie, who was 15, one five, he was 15, to the oldest, Carl Gorman, who was 35. A school was set up to train more Navajo code talkers. New terms were developed and there was a written training manual, but it was closely guarded and not allowed to be taken out of the school and never brought into the field. If changes were made or a new word or terms were added to the code, they would send a Navajo code talker who had been trained in the new code to go and train the other Navajo code talkers. The code was kept a carefully guarded secret. Because of the ability of the Navajo code talkers to quickly send and receive coded information that could change the course of the battle, they were highly regarded by their fellow Marines. During the famous invasion of Iwo Jima, six Navajo code talkers sent over 800 messages without any errors and turned the tide of the battle. Major Howard Connor, who was the ranking signals officer in charge of communications in that battle, said, Were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. 
Keep in mind, the fighting in the Pacific was some of the hardest and most brutal fighting. This was largely done in thick jungles, where in Europe, soldiers were traveling on roads by vehicle and had aid of tanks. Those fighting in the Pacific were often trudging through jungles, subject to frequent ambushes or attacking well-defended dug-in positions. I watched a YouTube video of these gentlemen, and they said they were always nervous about snipers in the trees. So these Navajo code talkers were right there in the thick of battle, relaying vital information. For the system to work, code talkers had to be right on the front lines. Although the Navajo Code Talkers started out as the original group of 29 Navajo men, by the end of World War II, there were about 400 Navajos serving as Code Talkers around the Pacific. It's still considered one of the most successful military code projects ever, and it's thought that the Japanese were unable to crack any of the Navajo Code Talker messages. The Navajo Code Talkers project was so successful, it remained classified until 1968, and there's some speculation that it was used in a more limited fashion during the Korean War. Of the original 29 Navajo Code Talkers, one was killed in action, and six others received Purple Hearts for being injured in combat. The last of the original Navajo Code Talkers, Chester Nez, died in 2014. There has been some recognition of the work and contributions of the Navajo Code Talkers. President Reagan gave the Navajo Code Talkers a certificate of recognition in 1982 and declared August 14th to be Navajo Code Talkers Day. In 2000, President Clinton signed a law which awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to the original 29 Navajo Code Talkers. And President George W. Bush presented medals to the four surviving Navajo Code Talkers in July of 2001. I just think it's really important that these men, recognition for their bravery, sacrifice, and their contributions to the Marines, definitely not a fan of war. What's happening in Ukraine makes me so sad. But I do think we need to honor those who sacrifice in war to protect their country and to fight against aggressive regimes. To me, these Navajo Code Talkers are heroes and deserve recognition and deserve to have their story told. Navajo Code Talkers Day is coming up August 14th, and I don't know yet how I'm going to celebrate it, but I definitely will figure some way to honor these American heroes. Now to the otters. I mentioned really briefly in episode 137 when talking about 94-year-old climber John Mowat and mentioned that we had climbed, or I should say hiked, Smith Rock last summer. During that hike, we saw this cute family of river otters playing in the water, and honestly, it was so fun. My husband loves otters, and when we're at the Oregon Zoo or the High Desert Museum outside of Bend, it's always a highlight for him to watch the otters. I'm pretty sure if it was legal, we would have a pet otter. And I have to admit, they're pretty dang cute. Well, besides being super cute, otters are pretty important for the ecosystem. Despite otters being so friendly, playful, and cuddly looking, they're very successful predators. And like other predators, they keep things in balance. I've talked before about reintroducing wolves into the Yellowstone National Park. 
to help stabilize and improve the environment there. The wolves hunted deer and rabbits. That allowed certain plants and trees that had been overgrazed by deer and rabbits to regrow, which then allowed the plants to take root and avoid soil erosion, which allowed stream banks to settle, which then allowed more clarity in the water that helped the whole region recover. It's just amazing how interconnected everything is. Like wolves, otters play an important role in their ecosystem. And like wolves, otters, particularly sea otters, were almost hunted to extinction. Back in the 1800s, there were about 150 to 300,000 sea otters along the North Pacific Rim, which includes the shores of northern Japan and down North America's west coast from Alaska down to Baja, California, and Mexico. Otter fur was highly coveted, and hunters and trappers ravaged the sea otter population for their fur. Sea otters have the densest fur of any animal on the planet. They have up to a million hairs per square inch. To put that into perspective, a human usually has less than 100,000 hairs on their entire head, while other marine mammals like whales and dolphins, use a layer of blubber to keep warm. Sea otters rely on their dense fur. Their fur is super soft, an incredible insulator, which is why it was so desired by the fashion industry in the 1800s and early 1900s. By the 1920s, sea otters were almost hunted to extinction, with about 99% of them being killed for their coats. In 1977, sea otters became a protected species under the Endangered Species Act. With that protection, northern sea otters that are largely along the coast of southern Alaska and British Columbia have rebounded back to about 100,000 sea otters. The smaller southern sea otter has not bounced back as quickly and only occupy about 13% of their original range, mainly along California's central coast. Their number was once as low as 50. 50 remaining southern sea otters. Fortunately, their numbers are up to around 3,000. At the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is about 120 miles south of San Francisco, they've been successful at rescuing orphan baby otters and rehabilitating them so they can be released back into the wild. 24-year-old Rosa, the sea otter, has been a surrogate mom to dozens of otter pups. She teaches them how to groom themselves, which is important to keep their layer of warmth and help keep them afloat. She teaches them how to hunt for shellfish as well as how to crack open the shells. Otters often use rocks to break open the shells of abalone and sea urchins in order to eat them. Sea otters often have a favorite rock that they keep in a little pouch and carry it with them, which I think is just so cute. Otters come with pockets. Anyway, otter cubs are dependent on their mothers and would die without them. So old Rosa has been teaching baby otters how to be successful otters for more than 20 years. Now the increase in otter population isn't only good for the otters, it's good for the entire ecosystem. After the sea otter population was nearly destroyed, sea urchins, those spiny-looking egg-like creatures who happened to be the sea otter's favorite food, took over everything. One study showed that the sea urchin population in California increased approximately 10,000%. These sea urchins ate entire kelp forests, which are important for fish hatcheries, seals, and oxygen production in the ocean. 
In Northern California, approximately 95% of the kelp forests were severely damaged or destroyed by the urchins. Marine biologists now know that sea otters are the guardians of these crucial kelp forests. They eat the urchins and keep the population under control and in turn allow kelp forests to flourish. Interestingly, sea otters are fighting climate change. As their population grows, they eat more sea urchins and therefore allow kelp forests to grow and spread. A single kelp forest absorbs and holds enough carbon emissions to offset 5 million automobiles. Fish species also depend on kelp forests, so otters are helping the fishing industry, which has seen declining fish populations. As top predators, sea otters are known as keystone species, and fortunately, there are more studies being done to help figure out ways to repopulate these cute little predators. So some fun facts about otters. They're most closely related to animals like wolverines, badgers, and weasels. When they catch a shellfish or sea urchin, they bring it back to the surface, put it on its tummy, and crack it open with a rock they carry in their pouch. Otters float so easily because of their dense fur, not only that it keeps them warm, it traps a layer of air that makes them buoyant. The water doesn't really ever reach their skin. While there are a ton of videos of cute otters playing and interacting with humans, they don't make good pets. The last Wednesday of May each year is World Otter Day. That's something I'm going to have to put on my calendar and celebrate by watching otter videos that day. And I'm sure I won't have to bend Craig's arm to join me. Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. Albert Einstein. We want to hear from you. Please email us your thoughts, story ideas, or just say hi at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Tell us about someone inspiring in your life and like or subscribe to our podcast. It helps us out and helps others find us. You can find more information about us at our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Follow us on Instagram at tangentialinspiration. 